Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. We know that we can't take our property with us when we die, so who should it go to? Today we'll be discussing property rights after death, what are our expectations, and do they align with what the law is established? Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we have a friend of the show and, you know, a personal friend, John Morley, esteemed professor of law at Yale Law School. Let's talk about property rights after death. Thanks very much for having me, Joel. I'm excited to talk with you. And I should say from the top, this is related to a paper that's currently in the works or awaiting publication where you not only thought through the legal issues, but you did a bit of a survey. Yeah, so my co-author Yair Listikin and I surveyed 9,000 people and asked them what they want to do with their property when they pass away. Well, you know, I think of my grandmother in her later years. She, she lived her life thinking about what could she leave behind? How could she benefit her children or grandchildren? These are important decisions. More important than the property we leave to our descendants are the emotional legacies that property often represents. When people think about what to leave behind, they want to convey not just assets, but also the meaning that they associate with those assets. Sometimes there are particular family-related forms of meaning in a, meaning in a vacation home, or a treasured piece of jewelry. Sometimes it's just a way of saying to your children or to your spouse or to your other loved ones, I'm thinking about you, I care about you. And so studying how people distribute their property when they die is also a way of studying what people value during their lifetimes. So John, I guess off the bat, we're talking about uh, leaving things after we're dead. Why don't I give you a, a challenging question from the top? Why does this matter? It matters for two reasons. The first is that if you die without a will, the law has to make decisions about who will get your property. If you don't say, somebody's got to make a decision, and it falls to the state legislatures to decide. And a lot of people die without wills. Another reason is that the property we convey at our deaths conveys also a lot of meaning during our lives. Studying the way People distribute property at their deaths, in other words, is a window onto the way they think about their relationships during their lifetimes. And we're living in a moment when the character of the American family is changing a lot. Um, people are living with non-marital partners. They're forming second and third marriages or relationships. And as the American family changes, it becomes increasingly important to understand how people think about those families. Part of what you're saying is that families themselves look very different than perhaps at the time these laws were written? Yeah, the laws really were written on the assumption that people would be either married or single. They were written on the assumption that children would come from a current marriage and not from outside of it. Um, and they were written on the assumption that people would overwhelmingly want to make gifts within their families rather than to other relatives. But you know, over time, the rate at which people live with their partners and form non-marital relationships has dramatically increased. The rate at which people have children outside of marriage has dramatically increased. And maybe what's even more challenging is that the rate of these non-traditional families varies across different populations. People who have not graduated from college are many times more likely to have children outside of marriage than people who have graduated from college. Even though almost every American adult lives with a non-marital partner at some point during their lifetimes, people who've graduated from college tend to um, treat these relationships as short-term trials for marriage, whereas people who've not graduated from college often treat them as lifelong arrangements. Interesting. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I, I think we'll get to some of it in when we're discussing the survey that you did in some detail. I guess before we jump into the law, because I'd love to, I'd love to understand what what intestacy means in terms of legal choices. Why don't we Why don't we tease the the viewers a little bit and hit a couple of the surprises that you saw in in your survey results? We found a lot of things that were surprising. One was that 
people give a lot less to their spouses than we would have predicted. Another is that people give a lot more to their non-marital partners. Another is that gifts to spouses and non-marital partners are powerfully correlated with race, gender, and class. African-Americans give less to their spouses, women give less to their spouses, and people who've not graduated from college give less to their spouses. Um, we also found some surprises with regards to giving to people other than spouses. We found that people give a lot to their stepchildren, surprising amount to their stepchildren. We also find that they tend to give much less to their ancillary relatives than we might have predicted, aunts, uncles, and cousins. Well, let's get some legal terms, some property terms uh, out up at the top. Let's talk about the difference between testacy and intestacy. Most property in the American system is disposed of at death by will. If I make a will, property gets distributed according to the terms of my will. And if I die with a will, I am said to be testate. And I am the testator of the will. If I die without a will, I'm said to be intestate. And these are terms that come back from old England and, and the Middle Ages. Yeah, the late Middle Ages when wills first became possible in England. If you die testate, that means that you already decided who gets what, what you're leaving behind. And then if you're intestate, then it'll be up to the state to decide how those things are distributed. Yeah, if you own a piece of property at your death and your will specifies what you want to be done with it, then in general, it will be distributed consistently with your will. But if you don't say, well, then somebody's got to decide. And every state have a, has a body of rules called intestacy law that determines what will happen to the property you own when you die. You mentioned that each state is, is distinct, but I imagine that there are some general principles, as you said up at the top, spouses and children uh, being primary beneficiaries? Basic impulse of intestacy law is to try to do what we think people would have wanted to do if they had made wills themselves. In other words, the rules are kind of majoritarian default rules. They do what we think most people would want. And in general, we think, or at least the rules suggest we think that most people want to give most of their assets to their families. So the rules generally start with spouses and children and then move outward from there if a person doesn't have spouses and children. The rules vary quite a bit though, a surprising amount. One of the most fundamental questions is, if a person dies with a spouse and children living, how much should go to the spouse and how much should go to the children? About half the states give a half or less to the spouse. The other half give 100% to the spouse, often above. Even with children? Yes. There are further variations. If my children, say if I'm in a second marriage and my children come from a first marriage, then maybe uh, the law will give 100% to my spouse up to some certain, certain threshold. And beyond that threshold, we'll split it in some fashion between my spouse and children. So the law in those states maybe doesn't value second marriages quite as highly? I think it acknowledges that a decedent, a person who's passed away with property, a decedent values both the spouse and the children. And in a conventional family where the children are also children of the spouse, the decedent can basically trust the spouse to pass on the property to the children after the spouse dies. If I've got a house and my wife lives in it until her death, I can be pretty confident that at her death it will go to my children because they're also her children. But if my children are not her children, or if she has children of her own who are not mine, then things are not as easy. In other words, blended families produce blended loyalties. And you mentioned, John, that the underpinnings of these rules are majoritarian. In other words, the state is coming in and trying to think, what do most people want? How can we create, in essence, uh, a template will in, in case people don't make one? Do states ever put their finger on the scale and think, well, maybe this isn't what people want, but this is what they should want? States would rarely admit that, but I think that as a practical matter, that is in fact what they're doing. And I think part of what my study is illustrating is that often what people say they want is not very wise. 
people often don't have a good handle on what either they really want or what they should want if they had been what they would want if they had carefully deliberated and been given good advice. And so, yeah, sometimes the law pushes people's in, people in directions that they might not want otherwise, but which it would be wise for them to want. I don't think that's a bad thing. Sure. So in this, in the similar sense that states will have a best interest of the child standard when it comes to um, certain legal issues, uh, perhaps as a result, they might push for more assets to go to children? Uh, yeah, although in general, the, the tendency of the state laws is actually to push for more assets to go to a spouse. Um, on the theory that a spouse will usually provide for children. One way to think about it, Joel, is that it's a bit like, um, like a nudge. Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler have this famous book called Nudge, which argues that rather than mandating that people do things, we should establish defaults that we think are in people's best interests. Like making organ donor uh, the default rather than opt-in. Yeah, or when you join a new employer making contributions to your 401k a default. You can opt out, but it's hard to do, so you're less likely to do it. Perhaps it plays to our human instincts of momentum. Yeah, I think it also speaks to the judgment and influence of the trusts and estates bar on the making of these laws. The way these laws have been made to date is basically that people who have a lot of experience counseling clients about how to dispose of their estates get together and say, this is what we think the law should be based on our experience counseling clients. And I think what my survey does is demonstrate that there's a pretty big gap between what lawyers tell people to do and what people say they want. Well, let's talk about some gaps. You know, one area that I think really stood out in your survey and in, you know, at least the early drafts of the papers that you've uh, shared with me is the challenges when it comes to non-traditional families. Maybe you could explain that. Before we did this study, which we structured as a survey of 9,000 adults, everything we knew empirically about the distribution of estates at death comes from studies of wills that had actually been filed and probated for people who'd actually died. And those studies have two problems. One is that the samples are biased. Um, people who file wills aren't necessarily the same as people who don't. The other problem is that we can't see in those records evidence of non-traditional families. When a person dies, there's no box that they get to check on a form that says they do or don't have stepchildren, or they do or don't have a non-marital. It'll just say the person's name and the amount or what they're getting. It won't say, this is my, um, my longtime lover and this is her daughter. Yeah, or worse yet, Joel, um, it may not mention this lover's name or her daughter's name at all. So if I don't make, if I look at a will and there's no gift to a stepchild, is that because the decedent didn't want to make a gift to his stepchild or because he didn't have a stepchild? Right. There's no way of knowing the rate at which people are giving to relatives unless we first know whether they have those relatives in the first place. Unconventional families also pose challenges because it's less obvious what people want in those families. So let's just take a conventional family like, say, the Barack Obama family. Um, it, it, when, when Barack or Michelle pass away, it'll be pretty obvious what they would want. They'd want everything to go either to their spouse or their children. By contrast, um, if Melania Trump were to pass away, she's got all of these stepchildren, and let's say that she were to pass away after Donald, should we want, would she want everything to go to her own son, Baron? Would she want to share some of it with uh, her stepchildren? Or if Donald were to pass away, how much would he want it to go to Melania versus his stepchildren? Or let's take somebody who's, who's not married to their partner at all. Um, I've, take Stieg Larsson, the guy who wrote The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo books. So he lived with a partner his entire life, like many Scandinavian people, without ever marrying her. And he was estranged from his family. 
And then when he died in testate, soon after he died in testate, his, those books blew up and his estate became worth a fortune. And this woman with whom he'd spent his entire life didn't get anything. Wow. And, you know, I would imagine if he had written a will, it would have resulted in a very different outcome. Undoubtedly. But, but we don't know. You know, like people don't get married for a reason. Um, when I first started writing or exploring this project, I started asking people who were living with their non-marital partners, saying, would you want to treat your non-marital partner like a spouse? And some of them, yes, of course. And some of them said, well, no, that's why I didn't get married. <laughs> Sounds like some of these survey results um, were inherently interesting as well as uh, good data points for your, your paper. Yeah, that's what I say. Gifts people make at death are a window into life. And we've been talking mostly about family, um, but some, sometimes people will leave their estate to charity or to uh, a church or um, perhaps to a friend. So family isn't the only option. Family isn't the only option. And indeed, one of the questions we set out to answer was whether people strongly prefer their families in the way that intestacy law tends to do. And actually what we found is that the presence for family was extremely strong. Um, people give remarkably little to charity um, or express a desire to give remarkably little to charity. They do, they are however remarkably generous to friends when they don't have spouses and children of their own. People tend to give a lot to their friends when they don't have close relatives. And if they don't have parents or siblings, then they tend to give a lot to friends over, say, aunts and uncles and cousins. I hear often the, the expression, the family we choose, which is you know, a nice way of referring to close friends. But you're making a distinction there that once those people actually get married and have children, uh, they're, they're less likely to be so generous to those friends. Yeah, I think friends tend to attract substantial gifts only when we compare them to more distant relatives. Um, I should say one of the surprises that I didn't mention earlier in the study is that um, people don't give as much to aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents as we might have predicted. Hmm. If they don't have spouse, children, parents, or siblings living, they really often go outside their families. I wonder if the grandparents' distinction is, is partly because they don't expect to be outlived by their grandparents? Yeah, that's a possibility. Another is that if you don't have parents living, chances are you don't have a grandparent living either. You're old enough that those generations have passed on. In your paper, you talk about blended families. What, what do you mean by a blended family? I think a blended family is one in which um, one partner or the other has children from outside the relationship. In a blended family, we're talking, that's where we're talking about stepchildren. Yeah. One of the tough things, Joel, in talking about non-marital relationships is that we don't actually have good terminology to describe non-marital relations. So take the, the child of my girlfriend. It's not a stepchild because we're not, my girlfriend and I are not married, but it's also not my child because I'm not biologically or even legally related to this child. So we call them non-marital stepchildren. So that's, I'm cohabiting with someone and as well as their children? Yeah, um, especially among people without college degrees, it's common to live together without getting married and to have children outside of marriage and often to bring children from outside of the relationship. Um, and it can be challenging to know how to refer to those children. So. For purposes of our study, we refer to the partner of a person, the children of a person's partner, as non-marital stepchildren. Maybe we can talk a bit more in that vein about cohabitation. Do people's preferences change once they're living with someone? And then does the law in any states recognize a right or a preference in intestacy for the person you live with? One of the great things about our study is that we have a large enough sample of people who live with a non-marital partner that we're able to perceive the importance of variations among those people. We have about 1,500 of those people. So we ask them direct questions about the characteristics of their relationships. 
How long have you lived with your partner? Do you own a house together? Do you own other large pieces of property together? Um, are you engaged? Um, have you provided for each other in retirement accounts or life insurance or other methods of transfer outside of the will? And my favorite, do you have a pet together? <laughs> and what we found is that all of these things are predictive of the amount people give to their partners. The biggest predictor is whether you live together. If you're merely dating and don't live together, you're much less likely to make a large gift. And the length of time you live together is also predictive. But outside of living together, the most predictive factor was whether um, you've made provision for this person outside of your will. If you've named this person as a beneficiary on your retirement account or life insurance policy, then you're much more likely to want to make a large gift to them in their will. Having a pet together was also surprisingly predictive. Uh, if I remember correctly, people who have a pet together make about seven, give about 7% more of their estates than people who don't have a pet together. That's interesting. Maybe it's it's that parenting vibe where it, you know it's not you don't have a child together, but it's a step in that direction. You want to make sure that uh, that Fido is well cared for. <laughs> and John, is that equally true for cohabiting friends as well as cohabiting partners? We didn't ask about that. We we didn't ask about roommates. I'd like to talk a bit about friends. The law, as I understand it really only recognizes family. Should the law recognize any beneficial interest in our friendships, in, in the people that we, we choose to, to let into our lives and, and, and become close with? I think especially when people don't have spouses or children or other close family, it would make sense for those people to give to their friends. As a practical matter, and indeed, in my study, we often see people doing that. As a practical matter, however, it's challenging to design a law that does that because friends are hard to define. Who are my close friends? How do we identify them? Um, how do we select them without generating litigation? And maybe you only knew. Maybe no one else had your internal list. Yeah, and if my motivations for giving to people aren't a blood relationship, then the motivations can end up being really complex. It's a mix of need and emotional closeness. It's very hard to say. So I, I don't think there's really any realistic world in which the law will ever provide gifts to friends by default. John, one of the interesting things about your, your research here is that while this topic, as you mentioned, it's intended to be majoritarian, it's supposed to kind of align with what our what most of us might want had we not dr drafted a will. But you point to some distinct variations in groups. And so perhaps it's majoritarian for Americans. Uh, perhaps it's not in some cases. But certainly within certain groups, the, the choices, as you point out, uh, have a higher degree of variance. Yeah, there's, there, the law provides different rules for different kinds of families. And the deep question in intestacy law is, how fine-grained should we go? How many distinctions should we make? So take, for example, stepchildren. In general, stepchildren get nothing in intestacy. And to the extent they get something, it's only in the event that there are no other relatives living. Uh, in many states, for example, you would have to have no third cousins once removed living in order for your stepchildren to get anything. But what we find is that people are surprisingly generous to their stepchildren. In fact, we find that people prefer their stepchildren over basically everyone other than their own spouses and children. They give more to their stepchildren than they give to their parents and siblings when they have no living spouses or children. But discerning the circumstances under which to give to stepchildren is a little challenging. For one thing, we basically, I think any sensible policy would require the spouse to predecease the decedent. It makes no sense for me to give to my stepchildren when my spouse, the stepchildren's mother, is still living. Um, another thing we find is that people give much larger gifts to their stepchildren if they have ever had the experience of living with the stepchildren. If I get married, so take my mother, um, 
Her mother and her stepfather married when my mother was just two years old. And my mother basically didn't have a substantial relationship with her biological father. She grew up thinking of her stepfather as her father. Under those conditions, of course, it makes sense to give a gift to stepchildren. On the other hand, so take my grandfather, who got remarried after my grandmother died. He remarried another woman when he was in his 70s. Doesn't really make sense under those circumstances to give his assets to his stepchildren. Partly because he, he likely had much less of a relationship. He certainly played much less of a, a nurturing role in her, her early stages since they didn't know one another then. Yeah, he just, he, he, didn't, he didn't raise these children. He wasn't their father. Um, and he had children of his own to take care of. So is the law wrong? Should the law be a little bit more generous to stepchildren, given the results that you were able to uncover? I think it should be more generous to stepchildren. In our study, we've discovered many ways in which people's preferences diverge from the law. And I think often people are just expressing unwise or naive preferences that we should ignore. But there are certain circumstances in which I think people are reflecting or expressing considered judgments that we should take seriously. And I think one of those circumstances has to do with stepchildren. Again, returning to my mother's case, she had an older sister from my grandmother's first marriage. And then she had two younger sisters from my grandmother's second marriage. So there were four sisters, all of whom grew up together thinking of the man whom I regard as my grandfather, as their father, even though he was a stepfather of two of them and the father of the other two. It would be really unjust and illogical for intestacy to grant property to his two younger daughters, but not his two older daughters. And when we see people expressing a desire to give to their stepchildren, I think it's a deliberate and careful judgment that we should take seriously. So in many cases, this will be solved by the drafting of a will. But otherwise, if I had two stepchildren who I you know, thought of as, as children as well, or, or, or people that I, I certainly would want to take care of in the, in the case of my death, would I need to formally adopt them? And then if I adopted my stepchildren, would they be treated by, by intestacy uh, as the same as my biological children. Yes, in every state you would need to make a will if you didn't adopt them. If you did adopt them, they would become just like your biological children. The law of intestacy borrows from other aspects of family law in determining family relationships. Um, it doesn't define those relationships. It borrows the definitions from elsewhere. And since state law generally treats adopted children the same as biological children, we get the same, the, the same outcome in intestacy law. I should say, um, people often try to manipulate outcomes under intestacy or even wills by manipulating the definitions of children. In my trust in estates class, we read a case about a man who adopted his wife so that his wife would become a taker under a trust created by his grandmother's will, which gave assets to his children upon his death. Was that deemed legal under the law? No. The general rule is that you can't. An adoption of an adult doesn't alter the disposition under a donative instrument made by someone else. It probably would work for intestacy, though. If he adopted his wife, she would, uh, she would take his property in intestacy. In fact, a lot of same-sex couples adopted each other before same-sex marriage was allowed in order to achieve outcomes like this. Oh, fascinating. A quick break for our attorney, CLE listeners. The code for this podcast is 77322. Again, that's 77322. And now back to the interview. John, what did you discover when it came to leaving assets to your parents versus your siblings? And I think of this, you know, quite personally, because I, you know, as, as someone who's currently not married and with no children, uh, I understand that uh, were I to die, my assets would go to my parents rather than my two brothers. Yeah, when a person dies without a spouse or a children, the natural next takers tend to be 
parents and siblings. But in general, the law of intestacy follows a kind of logic of lineal descent. Um, it first gives everything to the parents, and only if you don't have parents living will it give anything to your sibling, siblings. The logic of that, I guess, is twofold. One is that it reflects an assumption that people would want to give to their parents. Another is it reflects an assumption that the parents will eventually pass the property on to the siblings when the parents die. What we find in our study is that people give remarkably equally to parents and siblings, even though every single state gives everything to the parents under those conditions. People split half and half. And the, 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 the whole distribution is similar. We have about the same number of people wanting to give 100% to siblings as wanting to give 100% to parents, same number wanting to give 75% to siblings as giving 75% to parents, and so on, all throughout the distribution. Fascinating. So if you net it out, <laughs> the, the result is an even split between parents and siblings. But looking a little bit finer in the detail, you'll see that some want to leave it all to the parents and some all to the siblings. Yeah, and about the same number who want to leave it all to parents also. Yeah, it's, it's astonishingly similar. So I think the natural outcome is a half and half split. You know, it raises some deep questions, Joel, about what we should prioritize in giving. Um, if we give to older generations, we can trust them to pass the property to younger generations if they don't consume it all during their lifetimes. But it may be that the younger generations are more in need. Um, if I think about my younger siblings, you know, maybe they need the property more than my parents do. Or it could go the other way, because my parents are elderly and retired, perhaps, on a limited income. Maybe they need the property more. It's often hard to say. I probably should have asked this up top, but what's the general, what's the statistics on the percentage of people who actually leave a will behind? In our survey, I think it's about 30% have wills, but I anticipate that by the time of death, the percentage would be larger. We find that older people are much more likely to have wills than younger people naturally, but we don't really know how many people die with wills because it's very challenging to count. Um, for starters, many people who die with wills never show up even in records of probated wills because most states don't require small states to small estates to generate any records. So we don't we don't really know. I find the the wills versus no wills question intellectually interesting. We have this hurdle to establishing a will. It's not something it's not something that I can just, you know, open an app and change who's getting my assets. Um, today versus tomorrow. I mean, perhaps I could if the app also came with witnesses and whatever requirements um, state law require. But generally speaking, there's some hurdles to putting a will in place. Yeah, the, the main hurdles have to do with execution of the will, the, the writing of the signature and the um, witnessing of it by other people. And the irony, Joel, is that you can do all sorts of things that affect the disposition of your property at death on your iPhone. You just can't make a will. So you can adjust the beneficiary designations on your life insurance account. You can adjust the beneficiary designations on your retirement account. You can open a joint bank account with rights of survivorship that will pass automatically to the other account holder. You can do all of that without a signature or a witness. Wills are much harder to do online than these other forms of disposition. The big problem is the execution formalities that are required to make a will effective. In most states, it has to be signed by the testator in the presence of some witnesses, and then the witnesses have to sign as well. The requirements vary in subtle and sometimes maddening ways. Um, if you sign, and then one of your witnesses signs, and then that witness leaves the room while the other witness is signing, well, then in many states, it might be invalid. It's really, it's really challenging. These execution formalities are the bane of the online will-making companies like, say, LegalZoom or Willing.com. You can go online and they'll have an elegant questionnaire to help you figure out what you want to do with your property when you pass away. And then they'll print it out for you. But it's up to you to get the thing properly executed. And you can imagine that people often fail to do that. I can imagine that there must have been a real will 
a crisis, for example, during COVID, when many people, there was probably a number of people who weren't able to get a a will put in place because of uh, isolation or, or a lack of witnesses or, you know, an inability to get an attorney to come in person, you know, those types of issues. Yeah, many states actually waived the presence requirements. So ordinarily, in many states, there's a requirement that the witnesses sign in the presence of the testator or in each other's presence or vice versa. And those requirements had to be waived during COVID. Sometimes they were satisfied by having people Zoom together, but it, it got complicated. John, you mentioned up top that there were some interesting distinctions in choices based on the person. Uh, why don't we talk through a few? Uh, what what distinguish what distinctions did you see when it came to gender, for example? We find that women give about ten percent less to their spouses than men. Um, We even find that women give a little bit less in same-sex relationships than men in same-sex relationships do. Oh, fascinating. We're not not entirely sure about that because the numbers of people in same-sex relationships are relatively small. Still, women give a lot less to their spouses than men do. And by the way, that same finding has also been replicated in studies of probated wills, that women consistently give less to their spouses. There could be all sorts of reasons for that. So one possibility is that women just have fewer assets. They haven't been out in the market earning wages. They've instead been taking care of children at home. Or maybe they have been in the market earning wages, but because of the gap in wages between men and women, they've earned less. But wait, we're talking about proportionate giving. We're not talking about That's true. raw dollars. I mean, you're, you're saying that they're giving 10% less to their spouses than to their children, for example, or to uh, friends and family, other family. It could arguably affect even proportionate giving, though, because women might feel as though their husbands need the money less than than men do. Um, Another possibility is that women expect to be provided for by a man in a way that men don't expect to be provided for, uh, or men expect to be providers, women don't expect to be providers. Um, This actually connects up with another study that I'm also doing with your listikin, in which we surveyed people about their attitudes, about their rights and responsibilities on breakup and divorce. We haven't yet written up those results, but one of the things we discovered is that um, women expect men to give them more than they expect to give men. Men expect to give more than they expect to get in heterosexual relationships. So it sounds like men and women uh, have different expectations, but they're both on somewhat of a similar page. There are still many people still have fairly traditional ideas about gender roles and relationships. Yeah. It sounds like that's being reflected in the giving to the spouse, at least, as you said, to move the needle 10%. Yeah. Yeah. You also tracked how giving shifts based on wealth or socioeconomic status. What'd you find there? Um, One of the things we discovered is that people of, let's just call it lower socioeconomic status, tend to give less to their spouses and non-marital partners than people of higher socioeconomic status do. Of course, socioeconomic status is a challenging thing to define. What we can do is look at the independent predictive effect of several different variables, uh, the number of years of education a person has had, their income, whether they have a bank account. Um, those things all predict giving with, with people of lower socioeconomic status giving less than people of higher status. So let's say I, I have no college degree versus you who have a college degree and a, a law degree. I'm likely to give less money to my spouse upon my death. You're more likely to prefer your children or other relatives over your spouse, usually your children, uh, but also occasionally other relatives. It's hard to explain that result. Um, and we, we don't have the data would, that would allow us to explain it, but we speculate a few possible explanations. So one is people of lower socioeconomic status and people of color, um, and of course race is correlated with socioeconomic status, are more likely to form multi-generational households than people who are wealthier and whiter. Um, in other words, they're more likely to live with grandparents and parents. 
And so one thought is maybe people are not giving to their spouses and giving instead to their children on the assumption that their children will care for their spouses. In other words, the caregiving obligations flows upward, not downward. Another possibility is maybe people perceive a more urgent need for their children. Their children, um, of course, children's socioeconomic status is correlated with parents. So if there's a scarcity of resources, let's put as much as we can into the children because they need it the most, that their lives are ahead of them. Yeah. Another possibility is people of lower socioeconomic status just don't have access to the education and judgment that would push them to give gifts to their spouses. If you show up in a lawyer's office with a traditional family and say, I'm married to my spouse, I've been married for a long time, I have children exclusively from the marriage, the lawyer will almost certainly tell you that the prudent thing is to give everything to your spouse. What are they basing that on? Like you said, that's the prudent choice. Uh, what's, what's the science behind it? Here things get really complicated. Um, one way of thinking about it is that it makes good practical sense. Whatever you give to the spouse will eventually make its way to the children if it doesn't get used up during the spouse's lifetime. Um, also, people often have obligations of support, either legal or moral, to their spouses. Sometimes children are young and can't be trusted with assets. I don't, I'm not going to give my four-year-old $100,000. Um, but maybe... Lawyer's judgment just reflects a lot of experience with the wealthy and white people who tend to show up in their offices. In other words, lawyers think that what's wise is what they see their own clients doing. But who are their clients? Well, the people who have the resources to hire lawyers. And so it may be that lawyer's judgment is just being systematically distorted. One solution doesn't fit every client. Yeah, lawyers are seeing a biased sample. I mean, it raises really deep questions, Joel, about what it means to be race neutral in public policy. So one of the things we found, for example, was that African-Americans give less to their spouses than white people. There's two ways to think about race neutrality with regards to intestacy law. One is that everybody should get the same rule without regard to race. The law should provide the rule without regard to what your race is. Another is to say we should give people what they want by race to the extent we know that preferences systematically differ by race. Because if we give everybody a single rule, it will come, it will, if preferences differ by race, the rule will inevitably come closer to the preferences of one race than another. Is that race neutral? And since the nation is majority white, then the laws may be better tailored for the interests of that community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical because I just, I think there's got to be so much variance within, within families as to, as to preferences. Uh, you know, my, let's say hypothetically, my, my spouse is a, a terrible steward of money, but my children are very, uh, prudent, and I know, you know, if I leave my money to them, they'll they'll look out for my my widow, or vice versa. You know, my my children are a little uh, precocious and maybe overly interested in the latest crypto coin, and the idea of leaving you know assets to them rather than to my spouse, who can look after them uh, for for the period of of her life, um, would be would seem foolish. Every family is different, and this is why we allow people to make wills. All we can really do in setting defaults is make judgments at the level of abstract categories. I think there are hard questions, though, Joel, about which categories ought to be relevant. Clearly, whether you have stepchildren or not should be relevant to whether we make a gift to your stepchildren. But what about characteristics other than family structure, like education or race or income? These factors are clearly predictive in our study, but even I would not argue that they should be baked into the default rules. What about, let's go new tech. Should there be some type of 
algorithm in place that decides, okay, based on your age and the number of years in school and the fact that you have a former spouse and the number of years you live together, this is the printout of how we think your your will would have gone. And so that's what your, your intestacy um, distribution will be. We, we actually have the formula in our paper. So we do a regression in which we basically predict the amount a person gives to their spouse based on a bunch of factors. And so rather than just like looking at a single factor at a time, at a time we could plug in all of those factors into our formula and come up with a predicted spousal gift for you. I mean, I got to say, John, as a, a lawyer, I was a little surprised at your paper. There's standard deviation analysis and regression analysis and it didn't look like your typical uh, law review article. We're trying to up the game here a little bit. Um, but let me say, Joel, I think this article illustrates a tension in how we think about expertise um, as well as the law. You know, expertise can come from two sources. One is scientific inquiry, which is kind of what this study does. Another is experienced judgment. There are lots of lawyers out there who've spent decades sitting down with clients who have a strong intuitive sense, both of what people want and also what's good for them. I think both of those forms of expertise are useful. What we're doing in this study is to supply one of them, scientific expertise, which has not been adequately supplied in the past. What about what people don't want? <laughs> is there, it seems like the law may be bad at recognizing uh, where families fall apart. <laughs> Let's say that I have uh, two children and, you know, God forbid one of them uh, becomes estranged and I have no relationship versus the other one. When I die, the law doesn't distinguish. No, the law gives equally to everyone who bears a certain relationship to you. There's a saying in intestacy law, equally near, equally dear. One of the surprising results of our study is that many people give nothing to their spouses. The average gift to a spouse is about 53%, but there are very few people who actually give 50%. Um, most of them are concentrated at 100% or zero. Wow. Well, 0% to your spouse is kind of a crazy gift. Um, it's illegal in most states. I was going to say, I don't think it's permitted in New York. No, in, in the vast majority of states, there's a law called the spousal share or the forced share, the, the elective share that entitles a surviving spouse to a certain percentage of a decedent's estate, whether or not the person makes a will. You can even make a will saying my spouse gets nothing and the law won't honor it. And yet we see about more than 30% of our respondents giving nothing to their spouses. Look, there's lots of potential explanations for that, but one of them, Joel, is that there are a lot more unhappy marriages out there than we understand. Interesting. And what about the other way around? Is there, do the laws prohibit you from cutting children out of your estate in any states? The only one I believe is Louisiana. And the reason is Louisiana has inherited continental legal systems. Um, in continental Europe, uh, often children get a certain portion of the estate, but in the United States, they rarely have a mandatory entitlement. So in the U.S., generally speaking, if you want to cut your children out, just put it in the will. The only circumstance in which it's not going to work if you've made a will is if you had a child born after the making of the will. Sometimes by default, the law will alter your will to include the omitted child. But all you have to do is make another will saying, not unmindful of my son, Joel, I give him, I give everything to my wife or to my girlfriend or whatever it is. So John, I guess before we wrap up on this, what would you say are the takeaways? Like how should this new knowledge of, of how we understand people's preferences, should this be, should we be updating intestacy to more closely align with our preferences? I think we should seriously rethink the move that's recently come about to give spouses everything instead of 50% above a certain threshold. 
I think up to a certain threshold, spouses should get everything because decedents have support obligations to spouses. But if a person's really wealthy uh, or even moderately wealthy, I'm, I'm not so sure that we should automatically give everything to the spouse. I also think that um, we should maybe split evenly between parents and children. I'm sorry, parents and siblings. We should maybe split evenly between parents and siblings. I think also we should think seriously about prioritizing stepchildren over what are called first-line collateral relatives like aunts, uncles, and cousins. I think it's pretty clear that most people with stepchildren, especially if they have lived with the stepchildren, would prefer the stepchildren over aunts, uncles, and cousins. Personally, and I'm curious your thoughts, I would, I would like to see states be a little more generous on letting people create or alter wills without too many hoops to go through because it's just such a, a challenge for people to get these in place. And, you know, what better way to reflect what we want than letting people say what they want? I agree with you there. And I'll say that the challenge is especially urgent because the people who are going to have most difficulty making wills are also the people whose preferences most strongly diverge from the law of intestacy, which is to say people who are less educated and who have fewer resources. So like, it's one thing to say, oh, if you want something unconventional, just make a will. But, but it's the very people who want unconventional things and have unconventional families who are least likely to make wills. John Morley is a professor of law at Yale Law School and we'll include a link to his upcoming paper once it's published. John, thank you so much for the time. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit talksonlaw.com. If you're earning MCLE credit for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.